Now this this almost feels like some sort of uh, some sort of fairy tale dystopia, sort of a Hans Christian Brothers Grimm, the the city without children. Hmm. A, a decade ago, uh, Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, wrote about that that very prospect, saying this. We have embarked on an experiment to rid our cities of children. The much-ballyhooed and self-celebrating creative class, a demographic group that includes not only single professionals but also well-heeled childless couples, empty nesters and college students, occupies much of the urban space once filled by families. He's referring to American cities, of course, places like LA, New York, gentrified, socially segregated, but the, the combination of unaffordable housing, lack of investment in social housing and social infrastructure, skyrocketing rents, exorbitant childcare fees, that will be sounding familiar, and it's hardly exclusive to America's urban centres. Australian cities are not exempt from, from increasingly pressing global questions around the place of children in how we design our cities. Alexandra Lang has given this question substantial thought. Uh, She's an award-winning design critic, writer, author of The Design of Childhood, How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you for having me. Our cities, our urban spaces, for whom are they designed, do you think? I think they are largely designed for, let's say, 35-year-old, well-heeled white men who uh, live in studio and one-bedroom apartments and commute to work on a nine-to-six schedule. And, and, and it's interesting you say that because that, that very description, <laughs> that's almost as old as the modern city, isn't it? That, that's not a, a recent phenomenon. This is, a, this is a thing that has been railed against since the beginning of the 20th century. No, it's absolutely not a recent phenomenon, though I think in in the U.S., and, and I believe this is also true in Australia, that kind of idea of who was using the city really took off um, in the post-World War II period with the explosion of the suburbs and the kind of propaganda and financialization of the idea that, um, you know, a good family lived in a single family home and had its own yard and the dad drove back and forth to work every day. So the family drifts out of town, the, the single people drift in closer to the centre of, of, of our cities. Yes, yes. I mean, of course, none of these things have ever been wholly true. They're not absolutes, they are tended, they? No. <laughs> they're not absolutes, and they've tended to be true of the privileged class, generally of, you know, white people versus minorities who have always had more, like, economic mobility and, and economic choices. So, I mean, there's never been a time when children weren't in cities, but really I think the question that, like, we're talking about today is how are children... Um, you know, catered to in cities, how are cities made like usable and accessible and pleasant for children and families? Yeah, because there's been, a, I mean, a, um, a, a separate development here of the the changing demography uh, of, of closer suburbs and inner cities, that those places have become gentrified, that there has been that, that sense of of social segregation and, and the predominance of that knowledge creative class in recent decades in those spaces. 
Yeah, absolutely. Which means that people that don't have the same level of economic power have much longer commutes um, and, you know, actually end up getting to spend less time with their children because they're living farther away or they make the trade-off of living with their children in much smaller spaces that are closer in. A city not designed for children. I mean, in, in specifics, what sort of things does that mean? Let's see. I mean, it really starts with housing because, you know, housing is everybody's largest expense. And when people build new buildings um, nowadays, they're trying to eke as many um, apartments as they can out of their square footage. And so that tends to mean smaller apartments. So you get studios, you get one bedrooms, you get a one bedroom plus den. So people move into those apartments um, when they're single or when they're recently coupled up. And when they have a child, they quickly find out it's, you know, it's too small. You know, there's <laughs> children's stuff everywhere. It's loud. It's a mess. You can't work from home with a baby, etc. And then they start looking around for a larger apartment, right? They want to try it up to a t true two-bedroom, to a three-bedroom, and they find that those are like hard to find and so like radically more expensive. So basically like the, the housing market is so much easier once you have a child to move to the suburbs. That's what it's pointing towards. But if you want to stay in t the city for many reasons that we can get into, um, it just becomes a much tougher economic prospect. And it's, I mean, it's not just economic. I mean, it's it's no. the way in which I mean, there's the, you you use a good example in in your writing of things like pedestrian crossings, um, of of, right. of subway steps, right. subway steps that that are uh, uh, would defeat a parent with toddler in stroller, um, crossings that are too quick to allow children to cross the road. I mean, those and they seem. It's so intrinsic to the urban experience, but so so prohibitive for various categories of people. Yeah, I mean, so you have so you have this family that wants to stay in the city, that's willing to have less room in order to have the proximity to big parks, to museums, mm. um, to work, and then you find that because you have this smaller space, you want to use the city more. You want to be out in public space more. But that public space is really not designed for families. And yes, um, you've already brought up a number of the things, but um, it's things like, can you take the subway with a stroller? Um, is there an elevator? Can you get on the bus and just roll your stroller on the bus without having to collapse it? If you're crossing the street, can you make it across um, while pushing the stroller or while holding the hand of a small person with very short legs before the light you know, changes to red? And kind of even beyond those kind of streets and transportation things, then there's the other layer of, are there parks with playgrounds? Are there parks with playgrounds within walking distance of your house? Are there maybe, you know, bike lanes that are protected so you can like actually have your child bike around the city with you and go a little further? You know, all of these things are um, important for families, you know, their mental health, their physical health. But as children grow older, it's also important for children to have independence and having things like longer crossing times, having things like protected bike lanes, having things like playgrounds that they could potentially go to on their own are also really important for child development and child independence. Mm. But they're also, uh, all those things you mentioned, would be on, on the shopping list of, of anyone who was wanting to make general improvement to urban space. 
I mean, these are the things that we think our cities are deficient in. It's not just for kids. This is just for people. Right. And that's the rhetoric of a lot of advocates for children in cities. They say, basically, if you make a city that's safe and pleasant for children, it will be better for everyone. Um, Gil Penalosa, who is an urbanist who actually ran for mayor uh, of Toronto last year, um, has a foundation that's called 880 Cities. And the idea is that the city should design to work for um, children of eight years old or um, seniors of 80 years old, because seniors also need longer crossing times and elevators and more benches and more shade and all of these things. So, I mean, I think that sometimes, you know, people who don't have children can feel resentful of children or people with children as if they're taking something away from them. And so it's important, yes, to underline that all of these things are just going to make the city nicer, better, safer, you know, shadier. Um, and you're not really giving anything up um, unless you're an extremely impatient driver <laughs> to have all of these things in the city. And why are you driving through the city anyway? You should be on the subway because children do need to occupy public space and they have a right to occupy the public space. You know, they are also citizens. And so not thinking about their needs is only going to create problems down the line. And we think a lot about the needs of kids in certain ways. You know, we fret about their screen time. We fret about their levels of literacy <laughs> and uh, physical well-being. Um, but, but in a way, and, and you quote Jane Jacobs on this um, in, in your book, you say, their homes and playgrounds so orderly looking, looking, so buffered from the muddled, messy intrusions of the great world may accidentally be ideally planned for children to concentrate on television, but for too little else their hungry brains require. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that that's an interesting side effect of the, you know, the deficiency in infrastructure and resource for kids in cities then pushes them into this situation that we, we know is, is damaging for them. Right. I mean, there's all this rhetoric, like, you know, why aren't kids getting more exercise? Like, why don't kids go out in the more, et cetera, et cetera. But we, you know, like we, you know, people in cities, designers of cities as a whole are not providing like good quality places for children to go and gather in person. Um, my more recent book, you know, Post the Design of Childhood, um, is about the history and future of the shopping mall. And I have a whole section in that book about teenagers who are an especially problematic, you know, subset of children and how, you know, people don't seem to want teenagers to be anywhere, right? They want mm. them to go to school and then they want them to disappear, but then they Some talk series about of tunnels how, you know, somewhere. Yeah, exactly. But then they talk about how they're like destroying their minds playing video games. But it's like, well, if you don't let teenagers go to the mall in large groups, if you don't let teenagers, you know, out after a certain curfew time, if you don't let them into parks because you say, oh, no, the parks are just for small children, the teenagers are too scary, then where are they supposed to go? And I think also there's so much emphasis these days on activities that are planned and activities that are paid for and organized sports. But it's true that at the, you know, in the earlier part of the 20th century, there were many more pickup games. There were many more street games. Um, you know, kids would play around the neighborhood and just come back at dark. And like, that's something that's lost 
when the streets become more dangerous and when we don't have public provision for children. I mean, people living, I mean, you know, there are there are two sorts of, well, there's more than two, but there are different states of living in a city. There's the suburban style of life and then that, that, that of the inner city. And if you're living in the inner city, you expect some of those things to be to some extent compromised. You expect a certain density. You expect, um, you know, streets that... that well, I was going to say you expect streets that may not be safe. What a terrible thing that is to admit uh, about a place in which we choose to live. Right. I mean, and there are many studies saying that if you just reduce the speed limit on urban streets to 25 miles per hour, you can reduce the serious injury and death by an incredible percentage. And that is what many cities in the U.S. are now trying to do. Just like if everyone in the city, which is not meant to be, you know, a high-speed zone, right? Mm. This is, you know, these are neighborhoods that are residential, that have shops, et cetera, et cetera. If you reduce the speed limit to 25 miles per hour in those neighborhoods, you make them automatically so much safer. Reclaiming uh, cities for people seems a, a superb project for this century. Uh, are we seeing data here that that suggests that families are, are are leaving the core of cities? Yeah, in a lot of places, yes, especially like kind of the highest priced cities. You know, New York City is a little bit of an interesting case because you know Manhattan is our high density core, and you know there are less children in the central part of Manhattan before, but because there are the outer boroughs, you know, I live in Brooklyn with my family myself, that becomes almost like a safety valve. There are still like almost a million, you know, school children in the public school system in New York City. Mm. Um, and more of them live you know, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in the Bronx, in upper Manhattan than they do in the core of Manhattan. But other cities with different geography don't necessarily have those kind of lower density, but still fairly high density neighborhoods of, you know, row houses, attached houses, etc. And so in cities like that, that become just super high priced high rises, people are forced into the suburbs, and then you get this urban core that's basically just for working um, and just for people, you know, in the early part of their careers before they couple up and settle down. Which is, a yeah, it's an unhealthy skewing and an unhealthy sort of specialization, isn't it, demographically in those places? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've talked about is how if you have people that think that they're staying in a place for a long term, they become much more embedded in their mm, communities. Mm. They have they have reasons to, you know, get to know their neighbors, to participate in block parties, you know, to vote in elections, to, you know, try to organize things so that their street gets street trees, you know, all of these things. If you think you're just passing through, it's like, okay, I'm just using this city for myself for this limited amount of time. But people that want to put down long-term roots actually invest their time and money um, and organizational capacity back in the city. And that's one of the ways that having these childless cities makes for a really unhealthy environment because there are all these people that don't feel like they want to give back. Like this place is, you know, they're just there for a moment. A lot of these things, I mean, yes, in, in, in some level, they they come back to planning and they come back to... Um, a sense of urban design, a lot of it comes down too to the, the, the structure of individual buildings and the, the work of architects and and developers and, and designers in those specific sites. 
And there seems a, a, a disconnect between what is either either financially feasible or architecturally fashionable or desirable and, and, and then what is appropriate for not being in transit for long stays for families for for people with kids i mean how how do we how do we push those structures to be to be better and more accommodating yeah i think we need to look back to some sort of early to mid 20th century precedents like courtyard housing um, which is something that's been used very successfully for families in vienna for example and you can get like a pretty dense building of up to you know five to eight stories but built around a central green space that is a much better living environment for families and creates a much better sense of community than say you know mm. a tower with an elevator and long hallways like on that same amount of space. So there really are models from the past that weren't necessarily discussed as family-friendly housing because I think a lot more housing just like was family-friendly at that time that we need to start building again if we want to keep families in the city. But isn't there a pinch point there that, you know, the people building those buildings want a return per square meter? There is a pinch point. And I think in some cases, like some of these buildings are going to have to be subsidized as social housing or public housing. But I also think landlords need to think about like how much do they spend when tenants turn over? You know, how often hmm. are they having to repaint apartments and refurbish them because people only stay for a couple of years? If you have the opportunity for people to live there longer and maybe move within the building because you ha also have like different sizes of units, I think ultimately your cost could be somewhat lower. I, I recently toured a new building that is a rental building, but uh, the architects and developers were talking about how they want to create a building that has lower turnover because they see that as a net benefit. Are there cities examples of places that are getting this better, getting this closer to right? Uh, unfor unfortunately for my U.S. readers, no. like a lot of them are in are in, a lot of them are in Europe, uh -huh. and I think there's a certain amount of um, weariness with being, you know, told that it's better in Europe. Um, but there was a really great article in the New York Times Magazine earlier this year about Vienna and their long-term social housing, um, which was mostly talking about it from an economic point of view. But if you looked at the photos, you saw that many of the kind of great Viennese housing developments, you know, starting in, in the you know, 50s and going through the present were courtyard housing that had green spaces on the roof, had playgrounds in the center, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, looking through my kind of family friendly lens, it was very obvious, like, yes, this was family friendly housing, even if it was never sold as such. And I think there are a lot of great examples of that also in places like Copenhagen. In my book, I talked about a really terrific example from the 1970s in Vancouver, Canada, um, which unfortunately now um, isn't such a great example because all the people that moved in in the 1970s just stayed there. And so <laughs> there isn't an opportunity for new families to move in. So it's become it's become a point of conflict because there are elderly couples living in that housing, kind of sitting in these larger apartments, and there isn't the kind of turnover that would actually make it into like a virtuous cycle. 
as you as we said though, Alexander, maybe the hope is um, that that and there's this confluence of, of things that would make cities better in so many ways for so many different categories of people, uh, and, and increasingly having conversations about those things, and maybe it will ultimately end up. I mean, one of two ways: they'll become desolate dystopias, or they'll become habitable spaces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always like. I don't want to lean too heavily on Jane Jacobs, but like one of the things that she talks about in Death and Life of Great American Cities is the need for diversity. And I think historically, mm. um, that's been applied to diversity of people in terms of, you know, race and class, and also to diversity of building types that we need not just um, housing and towers, but also brownstones and courtyard housing and social housing, etc. But I think we also need to think about diversity of age, you know, where people are in their careers, where people they are in their um, home lives, and that all of that is the richness that people really seek in cities, whereas suburbs have historically been much more of a monoculture. So I, I think the fear that some people are having is that the city will turn into a monoculture, um, and then kind of where will we be? Alexandra, thank you. I mean, there's there's all sorts of possibilities, uh, both good and bad. But let's let let's let's be optimistic. Let us hope for the good. And thank you for thank you for talking us through those things. Sure, no problem. Alexandra Lang is a design critic, a writer, and author of The Design of Childhood, How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.